Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Obviously, it's going to be an eventful day in the markets today with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and uh, the closure over the weekend of Signature Bank of New York. Yes, not our Signature Bank. Signature, yeah, Signature Bank, Bank New of New York is is a entirely different bank than Signature Bank here in Chicago that you hear advertising on our airwaves. That Signature Bank, the one in Chicago, is, is all good. We're going to talk to Kevin Bastuga, one of the co-founders, at the bottom of the 8 o'clock hour. Uh, Signature Bank in New York had some problems with uh, crypto investments, among other things, and were shut down by regulators over the weekend. There's an announcement yesterday about the Fed guaranteeing all of the unsecured deposits in both of those financial institutions. But there's a lot here to unpack, and it's going to be a wild day on the street. We'll talk to Christopher Whalen more about that at the top of the six o'clock hour. But uh, a little bit of housekeeping and fun from the festivities over the weekend, including uh, March Madness here at the local level. Bennett Academy. Oh, that's right. How did you guys do? Losing in the state final after uh, demolishing Nutrier in the semis. Losing in the state final. Bennett still never went has won a state title. To Moline. Oh, good for them. Uh, good news for Moline. Uh, well, good news for Moline is good news for the Iowa Hawkeyes because they've got uh, two prospects that are going to Iowa that uh, were the difference between uh, Bennett, whose leading scorer was out, but nevertheless. Wait, why was he out? Because I was trying to look for the score of the Nutrier game, and I couldn't find it. What was the Nutrier score? Uh, They won by 18 or 20 or something. Uh, So then Moline wins, so congratulations to Moline Mm -hmm. uh, there, uh, representing the Quad Cities. Uh, Interestingly, too, 3A, so Simeon dispatched with St. Ignatius, as one would expect in the semis, but then lost to Metamoro. In the state finals, uh, sort of a surp- I, I'm sort of, sort of surprised to me, at least. That was for the 3A, and then, uh, I don't know, 2A, 1A, you know, whoever won those state titles, congratulations. <laughs> and if anybody knows, you could call us, 312-642-5600. Uh, so there's March Madness at the state level, state basketball tournament. Of course, at the collegiate level, Iowa somehow snuck in. To the tournament. Okay. So you can predict Iowa's going to win the national championship, exactly. as you do every year. Yeah, so. I, I, I know. I put them down every year. Uh-huh. Well, we did win the Big Ten title last year, but not this year. Purdue won it this year. But yes. Right. Um, yes. yes, of course, because we're going to do our March down memory Madness lane with Iowa. Bowl. Yeah. Right. Justin already sent out the Evite. Uh-huh. Did you so, fill it out yet? Your uh, Not quite. So uh, Iowa's in. Uh, nor my alma mater, Northwestern, is in. Okay. Not that I'm... Super excited about that. They play Boise State. Winnable game. They'll probably lose. Uh, Illinois is in. They're playing Arkansas. 
Again, winnable game. They'll probably lose. Big Ten is just really, really fairly mediocre this year. I mean, Penn State in the conference championship game with Purdue and, and held their own with Purdue. I don't know. I just think the Big Ten's soft. So uh, <laughs> any slights that anybody wants to talk about if they're March Madness fans? Slights would obviously apply to only the collegiate level since you play your way into the state tournament games. Um yeah, I don't want to go too, you know, um, Joe Minardi here in bracketology, but uh, Iowa probably. I eh, yeah. say uh, it. Just I don't know. I don't know if I, I just if, own if, it. If I was calling, if I was on the committee, I don't think Iowa gets in. I think Clemson probably gets in for me. Maybe okay. North Carolina ahead of Iowa, but. Uh, it's just not a tournament. It just doesn't seem like a tournament without the Tar Heels. Uh, I, I, so college basketball, I don't know. Is this but, the first time they haven't made the tournament, North Carolina? No. First time in history? No. no. Well, in recent memory, I don't know. Uh, uh, pretty unusual, right. And so, uh, and then, of course, you had, and just in terms of the bread and circuses, which is what we're really talking about, but we were, before we have to talk about uh, all things dismal, which is real life, uh, focusing on the bread and circuses for a minute. Also, take any comments on on the Academy Awards. Uh, didn't watch it because who watches these self congratulatory uh, award shows for these simpletons? Um, some of them are great artists, but nonetheless, simpletons and barbarians. Um, so, any, anything you know? Any slights? Anything that you wanted to? Well, there were definitely slights at the Oscars. Anything you want to discuss about slights or with the Oscars, with the NCAA, anything you want to address with the state tournament? Speak now forever. Hold your peace. 312-642-5600. Or you could text us at 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Um, you have nothing? I, I didn't You didn't have an Oscar, Oscar party? I didn't. And I, or I always watch the Oscars, but... We had a little family thing yesterday, so I wasn't able to watch the Oscars. But uh, Michelle Yeoh, who won uh, Best Actress, took us, you know, uh, made a remark at CNN's Don Lemon about her. She's past her prime. <laughs> so we'll get that for you guys because that's oh, pretty. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. so cute? How, so cute. How I'm not past my prime. Um, I will say for those of you who are cinephiles, even if you didn't watch the Oscars, even if you don't care that much about who wins, which film wins Best Picture and so forth. The uh, Everything All at Once. Yeah. yeah, Everything All at Once. Won everything. That's all you need to know. Best all Actress, Supporting Actress. And basically All at best Once. Best Film. Um, the best movie of the year was, and it was not close, was Tar with mm-hmm. Kate Blanchett. But here's the thing about it. if you haven't so if you're going to see a movie, if you're going to see one of the oh I want to see one of the nominated movies, then you see Tar. Okay. If that's all you have the bandwidth for, that's the prioritization I would argue. Um, Did you see everything, everywhere, all at once? Uh huh. Well, and, was it good? And so, as I said, Tar is the movie that you okay. want to see. Okay, but was... that was the best. That was the best picture of 2022. Kate Blanchett was genius. She also should have won Best Actress, but I understand this is Hollywood and you have to do things where you lead with sort of political imperatives. Um, the, the reason that Tar didn't win is because it presented a really nuanced commentary and provoked nuanced thinking about the woke culture 
in America, in the West today. And, you know, it, I just want to say something about that without going too deep into tar is this uh, filmmaker, Todd Field, who not too many people appreciate. This tar was his film. He hasn't made a lot of films, but the films he made, he has made have all been exquisite. And uh, if if you want to go down a rabbit hole with Todd Field, which you should, and experience the rest of his oeuvre, I would say see Tar, then see his uh, two of his previous films, In the Bedroom and Little Children. If you want, like, really intelligent, thoughtful, nuanced, uh, non-cliched sort of social, cultural commentary and content. That, that, that would just be my advice and counsel. Um, if you want to just, you know, spend a couple of hours, you know, in a state of sort of adult intellectual suspension, then, you know, you can go see just about anything else, including everything all at once, which was, eh. You know, it's like a... What's it about? I don't even know. It's like, it's like, it's, it's like, a, it's Okay. It was okay. It, it, you know, it wasn't even that fun. It's, it's got a supernatural element to it. I didn't even find it that fun. Mary Kay, Western Springs. Hi, uh, guys. Good morning. So I turned on uh, WGN a little earlier to just see what the dresses look like because I know, Amy, you appreciate a beautiful gown. What was Paul Conrad wearing? <laughs> oh, stop. Um, he wasn't even on. Um, oh. uh, the, so the dresses, Amy, what was your favorite? Did you watch the whole thing? I didn't yeah. see one uh, minute of it. No. Who's was the prettiest? Not. Oh, you didn't want Harry Styles, I thought, wore the prettiest one. <laughs> Lady Gaga had a nice I, dress, yes. So I just took Lady Gaga did. All right, I'll check that out later. Um, Dan, the two movies you just said that Tad Field made, know. you said Tar is the one to watch with Kate Blanchett, correct? Right, That's that was nominated this year. And then two additional movies that he made, In the Bedroom mm-hmm. and Little Children. Little children. Okay, I got it. I, I this is how I um, will plan the rest of my week here and what I'm have to do. And appropriately, yeah, so. you're my, you're my entertainment. You know, you are my news guy entertainment. I'm your, I'm your I, entertainment. I get all my her everything, Dan. Yeah. yeah. No, all at once. Dan, I don't. I don't listen to anyone else. So that's what people are like. Will you listen to something else? And I'm like, no, I no, haven't. Why, I don't what's have a lot what's of time. the point? Yeah. If you're going to listen, you no should point. see the movie A Man Called Otto. I've watched it. Oh yeah, I've heard of that, Amy. Yeah, so this is the problem. I listen. No, I love you guys, but then I talk to Sean, and then when I talk to Sean, I'm like, "You get me all screwed up, Sean." We are, you know, like I'm all the anti sixty. Well, you know, I I I hear you, Dan. But I love you. You want to stay in civil society? You 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 listen to us. I hate family. (laughs) You can't pick family. I get it. I understand. You can't. You know, and he loves me. You know, we love it. We're family. Somebody texted me. Family. We're family. Huh? Yeah. Thanks, Somebody Kay. texted in. I heard there was no chance of Jimmy Kimmel getting slapped, so I didn't watch the Oscars. There you go. Bob, Buffalo Grove. Uh, good morning, um, Dan and Amy. Thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. You mentioned March Madness. Well, I've got a different version of March Madness. It wait, wait, wait. Pa- Andy- Bob, can I guess? Does it have something to do with engineering? Yes, yes it does. Woo! It does. Mm-hmm. Uh, 47 teams from around the Midwest, a team from Turkey, a team from Canada. Wow. They battle it out with their robots. It's not a, um, uh, what do you call a destructive robot, but the robots had to play a game. And um, for Amy, District 214, yeah. yippee, they won it. 
and they go on to the national finals uh, in Houston uh, in a world competition. Oh. And um, the, It was actually and pretty cool because I saw Amy. it on Channel 5 and Channel 9. They all covered it. Yep, this, it was big this, news. This, and then for Amy, was a, a, man, yeah. a man called Otto. Ooh. I did not see the Tom Hanks version. I saw the original version, which oh. came out of Sweden. Yep. The book was written the so, uh, from Sweden. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing, Bob. Thanks. Well, that's that's why Tar is, and and some of the other movies too. But because everything else in Hollywood is like a remake, there's no new. I mean, I know there's only seven plot lines uh, in the, you know, in the Western tradition, but um, but you can take different angles in. Everything is a remake, so that is um, the uh, this movie Living. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is which is quite good uh, with the uh, Bill Nye, um, but it's a it's a uh, it's a remake. Essentially, it's a remake of uh, Iroku, Iru- which is a Kurosawa film from seventy years ago. I mean, there's just like no, there's a ah. I mean, I, I you can do remakes, and it can be a man you know, called Otto is a wonderful remake. It's a great film. It's so sweet. You'll laugh. You'll yeah, cry. It's a great so cast. Sweet. Yeah. Sounds like the typical sentimental claptrap that comes out of Hollywood. <laughs> Watch Tar. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, before we move on from the Oscars, one more comment. I I forgot, and Mike Scott's newscast reminded me that uh, Brendan Fraser won uh, Best Actress, uh, Best Actor. I, why is there two categories? I, I don't know. Oh, that's right. Um, but anyway... Uh, for uh, the whale, and you know, I was I was excited to see it, and classic mistake. Anything that's being hyped by like the the establishment, entertainment, press, you should be wary of. I should know better. Huge disappointment, pun intended. The whale. What was it? A guy that overeats, binge eats, or something, right? Yeah. Hence the whale. See how yeah. I'm picking up on this title. Thing? It, it, it was. First of all, I loathed every single character in the film, which is always a bad start. You're supposed to have empathy for Brendan Fraser. I find I found him pathetic and detestable in the role. I mean, I'm not saying he's 
you know, this wasn't a, a lovely comeback performance, and I know he's dealt with some issues, and that's all well and good. I'm just talking about the film. And the film was, like, so on the nose with respect to the issues it sought to highlight. It was very preachy and not particularly creative. No aspect of it. The relationship between Frazier and his daughter, Frazier and his former paramour's sister, uh, Frazier and his students, because in the role he plays a teacher who teaches online classes and he never posts his picture because he's this you know, humongous guy and he's right. embarrassed and so forth. It's, it's just so beat you about the head and neck area with the message. Very mediocre film. Good performance. It's something to see. Brendan Fraser in this character and what they did sort of physically in terms of the presentation. Um, it's rather grotesque, but that's the point. I get it. But in terms of the actual quality of the film, and I, I know it didn't win Best Picture, but it's just, I don't know. It's a, a, it was a fine performance by Brendan Fraser. It was not... Uh, I was not... Mem that memorable other than just the physical image of him on screen I, I don't know but other people have seen it but I just found it like really sort of a snore okay. anyway all right does he get thin at the end anything positive yeah he uh <laughs> gets sent some gets Richard Ant Simmons uh sweating to the oldies tapes and, and he gets on the go, diabetes drug, and then when yeah, you get Ozempic or something, and then they and then you know they cut to black, fade to black, and the, you're supposed to think, oh, he's thin again, and every everybody lives happily ever after. Not exactly, okay. not exactly how it ends. Uh, okay, let's get on to uh, more pressing matters, like our ability to express ourselves, like I just did, like we do every day on this show, without. Uh, uh, the state, through their sentinels, that would be the big tech companies, coming in and stifling individual opinion, uh, debate among a free people, you know, those things. Uh, last week, the uh, weaponization of government subcommittee of the House Judiciary Committee had a hearing that featured two men of the left. And two of the journalists who've been providing us all of this, these Twitter files, all the information over the last several months that has substantiated what we knew to be true about how Twitter behaved uh, in advance of the 2020 election. Yes, but that's just one example, just in general with doing exactly what I was just describing, having their minders uh, left us all stifle anything that wasn't leftist orthodoxy. Schellenberger uh, opened his testimony before the committee talking about this censorship industrial complex, sort of uh, updating the uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower warning. Today, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of a censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. I'm grateful for this opportunity to offer this testimony and sound the alarm over the shocking and disturbing emergence of state-sponsored censorship in the United States of America. The Twitter files, state attorneys general lawsuits, 
and investigative reporters have revealed a large and growing network of government agencies, academic institutions, and non-governmental organizations that are actively censoring American citizens, often without their knowledge, on a range of issues. That's an important point that he makes there, and he develops it, talking about academic institutions and NGOs, non-governmental organizations, where they essentially serve as the middleman between the state and the big tech companies. Uh, it's not us saying that Dan Prof's account should be suspended. It's the Atlantic Council that went to Twitter and said, Dan Proft is a threat to national security, so please suspend his account. And he uh, explains in a little bit more detail, does Schellenberger. The Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and Graphica have all inadequately disclosed ties to the Department of Defense, the CIA, and other intelligence agencies. They work with multiple U.S. government agencies to institutionalize censorship research and advocacy within dozens of other universities and think tanks. It is important to understand how these groups function. They are not publicly engaging with their opponents in an open exchange of ideas. They aren't asking for a national debate over the limits of the First Amendment. Rather, they are creating blacklists of disfavored people and then pressuring, cajoling, and demanding that social media platforms censor, deamplify, and even ban the people on those lists. You understand that wrinkle, and it's an important one. And it also speaks to uh, the left's control of all these cultural uh, institutions, the academy, uh, nonprofit policy space. I know there are conservative think tanks, but there uh, are these NGOs that are funded by uh, wealthy leftists that serve as intermediaries. Uh, they also are funded in some of them by government. Academic institutions, you just mentioned Stanford, among others, also in part, even if they're private, funded by the government through research funding, taxpayer-provided research funding. So big tech and government, yes, but don't forget about the middlemen, because to forget about the middlemen is to forget about all these other institutions that have been corrupted and are now pushing for the silencing of dissent, the progression. Remember back in the day, the Patriot Act and the discussions of government data collection when clap on, clap off, Jim Clapper lied to us about the meta collection going on, yeah. metadata collection going on at DNI. Remember how some libertarian-oriented folks, some conservative skeptical of unlimited government power, even under the auspices of national security, said, you know, uh, dangerous servant, fearful master here, or fearful servant, dangerous master. Uh, so can how do we make sure this is limited to counterterrorism? How do we make sure that counterterrorism isn't redefined into being something more expansive than we're talking about here in the present? post 9-11 well we failed and so this progression Schellenberger describes where we are versus where we started importantly the bar for bringing in military grade government monitoring and speech countering techniques has moved from quote countering terrorism to quote countering extremism to countering simple misinformation otherwise known as being wrong on the internet the government no longer needs a predicate of calling you a terrorist or an extremist to deploy government resources to counter your political activity. The only predicate it needs is simply the assertion that the opinion you expressed on social media is wrong. Mm -hmm. right. You disagree. That is misinformation. Let's put the wheels in motion to silence this person if we 
find this person to be a threat, not to public safety, not to our democracy, but to our viewpoint, to our ability to persuade people to go along with whatever it is we're proposing. That's where things are at. And it was remarkable to hear the back and forth between some leftist members of Congress like uh, DWS. You know, she's the uh, that chick with the uh, Todd Christensen lid from the 80s. She's still sporting yes, that. I know. Uh, not giving it up ever. Yeah, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she went right after Matt Taibbi. She berated um, him and insulted him. And remember, Taibbi wrote a book calling Trump a doofus. You know, Taibbi and Schellenberger are both men of the center left. Schellenberger spent his career as a environmental activist. He famously wrote the apology a couple of years ago for engaging and fomenting some of the more radical and fact-free environmental activism. But he's still, you know, of that sort of mindset. But these are both people, Taibbi and Schellenberger, that are throwbacks to a time when there were men and women on the left who believed in peaceful pluralism. There are a few such people today. And that's what they're describing, not what I'm describing. And to the extent that you wander off the reservation is the extent you get the wrap-up smear routine from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Attention is a powerful drug. Eyeballs, money, prominence, attention, all of it points to problems with accuracy and credibility. And the larger point, which is social media companies are not biased against conservatives. And if anything, they ignored their own policies by allowing Trump and other MAGA extremists to post incessant lies, endangering public safety and even our democracy. She accuses Matt Taibbi of, you know, making money off this. You increased your Twitter followers, your Substack subscribers. Taibbi said, I don't know. It's about break even because I've also spent a bunch of money to hire more people to work for me as journalists, as investigators. But but that's the that's the smear. And then she goes on to a segue from the smear to saying, well, what's really happening is there's not enough censorship. And this was the repeated refrain of those leftist members of Congress. First of all, there's no evidence uh, that what you're saying is true, and there's a lot of evidence. And secondly, to the extent it's true, it's not going far enough. There's no conservative bias. In point of fact, there should be more silencing of dissenting viewpoints, conservative viewpoints on social media. You just heard Debbie Wasserman Schultz say it. Uh, Remember the wrap-up smear? Uh, six years ago, Nancy Pelosi described what they do, and some on the right do it too. It's a tool of politics, but let's recognize it for what it is. Matt Taibbi, who was this journalist, is New York Times bestselling author, man of the left, uh, providing all this information from wherever he got it, presumably Musk, but he's not going to disclose his sources, pressed as he was to do so. And now it's Matt Taibbi, cynical capitalist. You're just making money on this. There's no legitimate point of view you have. You're just a uh, vulture capitalist, which is what, of course, they call all capitalists. Nancy Pelosi on the wrap-up smear. Remember how it works? We call it the wrap-up smear. If you want to talk politics, you call it the wrap-up smear. You smear somebody with falsehoods and all the rest. And then you merchandise it. 
and then you write it, and they'll say, see, it's reported in the press that this, 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 and this. So they have that validation that the press reported the smear, and then it's called the wrap-up smear. Now I'm going to merchandise the press's report on the smear that we made. And it's, it's a tactic. It's a tactic. And that's exactly what Debbie Wasserman Schultz was doing. Uh, let's call Matt Taibbi a uh, vulture capitalist. Let's say the only reason he's doing this is for money. He's just a mercenary of Musk's. Let's say, look at your, look at how he doubled his Twitter followers. Look at how he dub uh, doubled or increased his Substack subscribers. You're just doing this for money. And so that's the exchange that gets reported. And now... Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz will run around saying, well, you know, as the Washington Post reported, Matt Taibbi has seen an exponential increase in his Twitter followers and his Substack subscribers. So he's making big money on this. That's the Washington Post reporting on it. I lob the smear, which is completely off point and without foundation that that's his motivation. And the post the new york times picks up on it and then i reference the post of the new york times hey hey that's not me saying it that's right there reported in black and white in the papers of record welcome to the party matt taibbi michael schellenberger huh taibbi uh went on dan bongino's show and we've had matt taibbi and michael schellenberger on the show before we'll get them back but he went on i mean this is where they're welcome because we actually believe in uh, debate and freedom of expression on our show, as many conservatives do, so they can have their say, even where there's still a lot of disagreement, as there is between like someone like me and someone like Taibbi or Schillenberger. But nonetheless, he went on with Dan Bongino over the weekend on Fox to recount his testimony and the evidence. Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government. So you're not going to tell us when Musk first approached you? Again, Congressman, so you you're asking me to yes you're no. asking a journalist to reveal so a source. So then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? No, now you're, you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I, 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 well, I just it, can't answer your question. But if we can take off the tinfoil hat... That there's not a vast conspiracy. Are you being paid to be here today, either through consulting fees, <laughs> no, campaign contribution to your not. next run? Data was given to these so-called journalists before SNAP. I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> So that was some more of the uh, assaults that Taibbi was subject to uh, per his testimony as the lead into his conversation with Bongino. Well, originally what we thought was going on was that uh, only the FBI and DHS maybe and maybe a few other agencies were directly telling companies like Twitter to uh, pull down a few accounts here and there. Um, but as, it, uh, as time went on, we learned that actually there's a whole complex of organizations and NGOs, a lot of them are state-funded, some of them are entirely state-funded, that are sending huge lists of names to these companies. Uh, and and those are, that's the primary route by which people are taken off uh, places like Twitter or Facebook or um, any social media site. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You've made the switch. And it feels so good. You switch to Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560.
the answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this was the scene at Silicon Valley Bank on Friday. Yeah, unfortunately, that didn't happen for Don Amici, but uh, no worries, because um, the uh, woman who recently retired after her run as Captain Kangaroo uh, and is now our Treasury Secretary was on Face the Nation on Sunday explaining that uh, they're working on it and they hope to have something uh, squared away by the end of the day. Well, let me say America's economy relies on a safe and sound banking system that can provide for the credit needs of our households and businesses. So whenever a bank, especially one like Silicon Valley Bank with billions of dollars uh, in deposits, fails, it's clearly a concern. Um, From the standpoint of depositors, many of which may be small businesses, Uh, They rely on access to their funds to be able to um, pay the bills that they have. And they employ tens of thousands of people across the country. We've been hearing from those depositors and other concerned people this weekend. So let me say that I've been working all weekend with our banking regulators to design appropriate Uh, policies to address this situation. I can't really provide further details at this time. But what I do want to do is emphasize that the American banking system is really um, safe and well capitalized. Oh, sure. Yeah, I feel safe. Do you feel, uh, listening to that, that uh, Janet Yellen is a simpleton or she just thinks you are? She thinks Mm. we are. Some combination of the two is also possible. Uh, More uh, failures expected, Captain? Let me just say that we want to make sure that the troubles that exist at one bank don't create contagion uh, to others that are sound and um, 
a goal always of supervision and regulation is to make sure that contagion can't uh, can't occur. Right, uh, except well, it did. It did. Signature uh, Bank of New York. Uh, well, sort of different kettle, but yeah, it's still a failure. Uh, so bailouts coming or or no, Captain? And we're certainly not looking, and uh, the reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again, but we are concerned about depositors and are focused on uh, trying to meet their needs. We're not going to do that again. Well, a uh, release that was sent out by the Department of Treasury last evening said just the opposite, that uh, unsecured debt holders and shareholders, certain unsecured debt holders and shareholders will not be protected, but they're otherwise going to guarantee the depositors at both Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank of New York. Um, no losses will be borne by the taxpayer. How does that work? You just print money? Oh, um, the banking system, uh, the uh, uh, Federal Reserve will make available additional funding to eligible depository institutions. Uh, and then you're going to uh, impose a fee on banks to allegedly uh, recompense the Fed. And how and where does how do those fees work? And then they turn back on to their customers. So this is this is a bailout by other nomenclature and other means. By the way, I, I, I do have to note here in terms of trying to understand where this all started. This article in 2021, New York Times reporting, fall of 2021. Banks are binging on bonds, but not because they want to. Banks are washing deposits. Their customers are taking out fewer loans, so they have little choice but to buy up government debt, even if it means skimpy profits. Huh. Couldn't see that coming then. Silicon Valley Bank, as well as uh, these banking regulators that are always at the tip of the spear preventing contagions, as Captain Yellen was telling us. Well, um, they apparently were surprised to learn that bond prices move inverse to interest rates. And so Silicon Valley Bank was caught on the wrong side of that inverse relationship that necessitated the margin call and the or the capital call. And the response uh, from v, the VC world prompted the run. So now we're going to have a moral hazard that was created by these modern monetary theorists cured by another moral hazard, the backdoor bailout. Do I have that right? Well, let's ask somebody who has more expertise in this area than I do. Christopher Whalen, investment banker and chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. He's the author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor for the Institutional Risk Analysts. Chris, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. You can't so, really make this up, can you? Um, I mean, um, this uh, FUBAR situation we have in the financial sector, I mean, is do I have this right that the MMTers – are using MMT policy to cure the negative results of their MMT policy? No, no. Unfortunately, as before, as in 2008, the banking industry will largely clean up the mess, uh, other than Bayer and Citi, of course, who ended up in the arms of the federal government. Uh, the U.S. banking industry picked up the tab in 2008, and they will pick up the tab for this. So effectively, the private uh, shareholders of banks are paying for 
Janet and Jay's manipulation of the bond market. And, and this, you know, is the end. In other words, we convinced everybody that interest rates would only ever go down. We convinced everybody that stocks and bonds at the same time would only ever go up, which is not normal. And then, you know, once we turned off the magic, uh, you know, machine, uh, the MMT machine, if you will, uh, we returned to normal. And the guys at Signature and Silicon Valley, Valley Bank uh, were asleep. You know, you don't have 40% of your book in mortgage-backed securities. That's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's a screw-up. They deserve to fail. But the Fed helped them. Let's put it that way. Well, well, right. I mean, per, per that New York Times story in terms of the incentives they present. But but this this moral hazard now you're creating of, uh, I mean, and I, I understand why, but it's always sort of like a one more go-around here. This moral hazard you're creating is saying, well, uh, for depositors, we're going to guarantee because we don't want uh, uh, startups, tech startups in Silicon Valley to not right. be able to make payroll and so on and so forth. But it's the private banks that are picking up the tab here, not the Fed. And when they say that it's not a taxpayer bailout, kind of, sort of true, but they will pay through inflation. You see, the real bottom line for me in the last couple of days is that we've realized finally that the Fed can't raise rates anymore. Having manipulated the bond market so that really three-quarters of all mortgages and all corporate bonds are now priced between, say, a, a 2% coupon and 5 Okay, You can't then move the market 600 basis points and not expect that every bank in the country is going to be insolvent. Today, if you really look at the numbers, if you mark both the securities and the loans, Every bank in the country is pretty close to insolvent, and this is because of the Fed. So, you know, they created the problem, and now they're going to ask the private banking industry to pick up any losses that will accrue to the FDIC's insurance fund. Yeah, but, but this – Well, well, but but, but, I mean, ultimately, I mean, you sort of said it, but I want to emphasize it. Ultimately, this all redounds to, you know, uh, Joe Punch Clock and Sally Housecoat. One way or the other, I mean, higher these, prices at the grocery store. Yeah, that's well, that's right. so that that's that's a that's a backdoor bailout, as far as I'm concerned, because because this is all artificially created by these mystics, and uh, and that includes exactly. some in the private banking uh, sector as well. And then who pays the freight ultimately? Well, it, it's exactly what I said. But this system is is built on inflation. Inflation is the the American pastime, and. You know, we have Humphrey Hawkins, which was this weird socialist compromise from the 70s where Congress said, well, you have to make full employment uh, reality. We thought we could legislate reality in our hubris, right? So now here we are, and it clearly doesn't work. The Fed cannot pursue both. And yet no one in Congress has the wit to realize this. And, you know, think about last week. Nobody asked Jay Powell about banks in two days of hearing. Right. Nobody in the media asked him about banks, and he didn't mention it. It was clearly not top of mind. Yeah, but did he know what was coming? No, no, they had no idea. When you see FDIC standing up bridge banks Mm -hmm. instead of announcing sales, it means they didn't have time to sell the bank. Well, didn't they try to sell it? And anyone who's anyone in Silicon Valley, that's the bank to use if you have a startup. It's cool. It's the hip, woke thing to do. Yeah, you just want the franchise and their relationships. You you could fix the bank. So I, I anticipate well, that Silicon Valley Bank will be sold. But the holding company, 
the thing you owned stock in last week is going to file bankruptcy probably. Well, Silicon Valley uh, Bank was um, uh, with the the UK uh, branch was right. just bought by HSBC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for a dollar, they for, assume the deposits to protect yeah. the depositors. They right. get the assets for nothing. Right. Off they go. Twenty twenty three, America's best banks, according to Forbes. Silicon Valley. Bank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're One of America's best now. banks, Seriously? financial superstar, Silicon Valley Bank. Not kidding. I know. Well, Forbes, was Forbes, Forbes is like a bank. tabloid for the for the financial yeah. industry these days, right? This, this former employee of Lehman Brothers loaded them up with uh, mortgage-backed securities, 40% of the balance sheet. Most banks usually don't keep more than about high single digits for Treasury in terms of liquidity. These guys had cash they couldn't lend, so they stuck it in the risk-free securities, right? These all are very low-risk securities in the bank regulatory world. And yet they have huge market risk because of the Fed. And well, the market right, but, risk has but, now killed the bank. But there again, the, who says they're risk-free? The government regulators, the, the, the financial well, mystics. They're the ones saying risk-free, risk-free. Right, because they're back, right, right, moral hazard. And, and, but, right. and, and, but then there's this sort of like uh, financial literacy 101 uh, relationship between bond prices and interest rates. These, these guys don't know about it? Well, somebody did because the CEO of... Silicon Bank sold three and a half million dollars worth of stock two weeks before the collapse. Yeah. What's well, look, ultimately, the, the what was hubris that? of the Fed thinking that they can manipulate the world and achieve outcomes that will please the politicians is, is coming to an end. I remember that great line from Gladiator when, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the fighter says the time for honoring yourself is almost over. Hmm. That's, that's kind of where we are. Russell Crowe. So, you know, so so what what happens if uh, you know a, a startup is supposed to pay 300 employees this Friday? The money's just not going to be there. They're not going to be able to. No, no, no. Make payroll. Look, listen, be there. FDIC is the most competent agency in Washington. When they say you'll have access to your money this morning, you will. Yeah, very that's, good at that. that's what they said over the weekend. I, I, I've i got uh, a position in a private equity firm that was banking at Silicon Valley Bank, and they sent out a missive over the weekend saying the same thing. So hopefully that'll tamp down some of the hysteria, uh, uh, Bill Ackman. But, um, but, 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 well, no, yeah, the shorts, the shorts helped this very much. The shorts were working on Silicon Valley Bank for months. Hmm. Little whispers, oh, the bank's in trouble. And so the small treasurers, the little startups out in the valley said, whoops, I need to make payroll. I have to pull my money out of Silicon Valley Bank, and we're going to put it in Chase. Okay? That's why the bank failed. Now, with Signature, it's a little different. It's crypto. Right. And the same fears started with Silvergate. That bank goes down, and then everybody thinks, whoops, what's wrong with Signature? Well, there wasn't anything really wrong with Signature, but if the depositors leave, the bank fails. That's it. 10 to 1 leverage, guys. If the depositors leave, the bank collapses. So you were just uh, mentioning it now that you can't raise rates anymore. Um, yeah. Right. So so then so the implications of being really stuck now, the Fed, they're, they're all the rhetoric about uh, taming the uh, inflation monster. And right. now we're a bobber in the water. No, I think it just shows that the the illusion and the nonsense that really comprises most of the discussion about interest rates in the economy is false. And the fact is we have 
at least mid-single-digit inflations as a permanent fixture of the American economy. This is going to have big political implications down the road, as you both know. This is why uh, the left has gotten traction in this country. It's because inflation is killing working people. Republicans need to figure this out, you know? They, don't, they won't win elections until they figure this out. Well, I mean, yeah, we need a, a crash course in um, the last uh, 15 <laughs> years of, of Fed policy, uh, among other right. things, and, 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 and federal government fiscal policy. But, I, you know, that's, that's the sort of two- and three-step analysis, um, I'm, I think, evades too many, unfortunately. But, but so, so where we're at, where we're going to be is, well, where we were for the 70s, which is a decade of malaise, stagflation. Uh, no, we'll continue with inflation for a while. The, the, the Fed is not allowing deflation. Okay, They're not allowing in the 1990s kind of scenario yet, but it will be forced on them. That's the thing. They think they're in control, but they're not. You know, they've lost control of their balance sheet. They can't reduce it. It's, it's going to stay just where it is. And I think that's the reality here, is the Fed has made inflation an institutional, permanent part of the American landscape. Even though they sit there and talk about fighting inflation, they can't. Because every time a crisis occurs, they write a check, as you were saying, Dan. And it and- just gets thrown on the pile. And so what's happened uh, over in the last several days that now, because, as you suggest, they were caught flat-footed, now they're going to be gun-shy, and so we're just going to be in stasis because they don't need any other high-profile banks to fail. They don't need uh, this to be happening all over the country. And so we're just going to hold serve and hope for the best. Well, we'll find out, won't we? That clip you played from Janet Yellen is, is striking. I love the Captain Kangaroo reference. She was great <laughs> as Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> no question. I've always thought she was uh, related to, uh, uh, you know, uh, her uh, uh, uncle in uh, the Munsters. If you put the two pictures side by oh, side, it's really quite Grandpa, strange. you mean? Uh, uh, grandpa. Grandpa, yeah, sure. I could see that. She's a versatile actress. Anyway, but you were saying, why was what Captain Yellen said so striking to you? Well, I don't think uh, Janet Yellen has much credibility with the bond market. Putting her on television before they had a plan was a mistake. She should have canceled the appearance and let the regulators do their job, which is what they did. The press release they put out in the afternoon told you what you needed to know. Janet didn't contribute to the discussion at all. And I think, uh, you know, Biden is making a terrible mistake keeping her at treasury. Um, He needs somebody with more financial experience and less economic credentials. And we have a lot of other people in the Biden administration who need to go, too, because, you know, the housing market, Ginny Mae, is about to melt down. And we do not have the people at HUD to deal with it. So they'll figure this out eventually. But that's the way Washington is. As Churchill said, we always try everything uh, possible until we are forced to make the right choice, right? Um, and that's that's kind of where we are now. And so but the, the good news is that we'll soon have happy days again because <laughs> because no more no more interest rate hikes. <laughs> and uh, the government is going to backstop uh, things like uh, bank runs. And so we can return to some facsimile of the the halcyon days of quantitative easing. And we'll see the Dow and the Nasdaq run up. No, 
because here's the thing. If we even leave rates where they are today, Dan, it's still going to hurt a lot. It's going to push us into a recession. They may not be able to raise Fed, Fed funds to six. I think it'll be closer to five. But the point is it'll still hurt, and you'll still have a lot of pain in the banking industry. Half of their capital is impaired at, at current interest rates. So unless they push rates down to three points, you don't get rid of the mark-to-market losses on the books of banks. That's the trade-off. Your banks are zombies. Half of their assets can't be sold because of the interest rates, and they can't lend. So you may get your stagflation, actually, if they keep rates at current yeah. levels. Yeah, well, that's, that's what I'm anticipating. I President mean, I, Biden's going to address the country later on this morning. That should be illuminating. He should, he should have yeah. Janet with him. Oh, that, yeah. Yeah. They could wear Captain Kangaroo suits. Yeah, they could. Though. Right. They could do a little putting on the Ritz <laughs> routine from Young Frankenstein. Because of bad tweets. Uh, this, is, uh, this is quite a little sticky wicket we're in, huh, Chris? Ah, uh, yes. It's what happens in a democracy after a long period of prosperity. You have the incompetence and the careerists in all of the wrong places, and then something happens. You know, there's no Carter Glass or Harry Stiegel roaming around Washington today. We had giants in Washington 100 years ago who actually understood money. These people have no money. They're, they're all looking for money. So as a result, they sound good, but they really don't know what they're doing. Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and editor of The Institutional Risk Analyst. Chris, thanks as always for your expertise. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We've got uh, banks failing. We've got debt accumulating. We've got tax increases proposed. But what... uh, White House spokesman KJP, Karine Jean-Pierre, the quadruple threat, wants you to focus on. Is what? Is the sisterhood of the traveling pantsuit. Take a listen. Introduction and have joined us in the briefing room before. And so I'm going to keep it short, but a couple of things I do want to say at the top about the two of them. Chair Ross has led the Council of Advisors for two years as of Sunday. This is her third tour of duty at the White House, and she previously served as dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. She is also the first black woman to be CEA chair. Director Young has similarly led the Office of Management and Budget for almost two years. She previously served as the clerk and staff director for the House Appropriations Committee and knows the Hill and appropriations as well as anyone, maybe better than most. Shalanda is the first black woman to be OMB director. You may be sensing a theme here. (laughs) Stick with me for a second. But I do want to take a moment to note the historic nature of the moment that you see in front of you right now. All three of us are historic first in our roles. The first black woman to serve as CEA chair, OMB director, White House press secretary. The first black woman right in front of you for all of those three important, important key roles uh, in the administration. Now, that did not happen by accident. It takes 
It's, it, is, it's, it is thanks to this president, President Biden's leadership and commitment to building an administration full of the best and the brightest. And I am so proud to be standing with two of the best and the brightest in this administration. That was my favorite Oscar speech last night. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line. 646-36DA, turnkey.pro, text line, best and the brightest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She forgot to mention she was a lesbian. She, she did, focused on race and gender um, there, which yeah. is, of course, important. That's the most important thing when you want to talk about, uh, you know, economics, the race and gender of the people that are heading up the Office of Management and Budget or uh, chairing the Council of Economic Advisors. That's what you mainly care about, right, the race and gender of those individuals. Oh, of course, yes. But it's National I mean, Women's Week or something, right? Does it does it does it does it ever does it ever get enough? Does it ever get to the point where you're willing to say what you're thinking silently? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line. Six four six three six D A turnkey dot pro text line. Do you think that's being nice? Letting them letting Karine Jean Pierre who is um, not getting by, any better at her job, by the way. But right. By any sort of objective standard is not in the conversation about the best and the brightest at anything, as far as I can tell from her performance, you know, merit-based analysis. Um, but does it ever, do you think he's being nice just to, to indulging this sort of self-congratulatory identitarian bilge? Because we do that all the time, and it's infected every institution in America, and silence, silence. Why are we afraid? Why are you afraid to say, you know, just enough already? Yeah, I, I see. You're a black woman. Congratulations. I don't really care. Just do your job like I do my job, like everybody else does their job. Talk about the time for celebrating yourself will soon be in an end since uh, our friend Chris Whalen in, uh, invoked uh, Maximus and Commodus from Gladiator. That's all this is, this merit-free congratulating oneself. Got a text message. I thought MLK said he looked forward to a world where we were judged by the content of our character and not yeah, the color of our skin. That's not, that's not good enough. I guess that's out the window, huh? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so is that cliche. Somebody uh, address it straight away in common parlance without invoking you know, sort of the go-to quote from Martin Luther King. It's just nonsense. Well, it's getting old. Is it? Isn't it? I, I think so. But I understand people are afraid. The question is why and what will it take to confront said fear? Give me an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, This uh, exchange, which is a much more illuminating and relevant exchange. I mean, that's a good example of what everyone is being subjected to. But here's a good example of somebody making it safe to say out loud what you believe, because silence in the face of ignorance is not being nice. That is not the definition of nice, congenial, 
being a good person. It's the opposite of that, actually, isn't it? The post-millennial uh, writer Savannah Hernandez, she does some interviews, you know, man-on-the-street stuff. Uh, Savannah Hernandez is a woman of color. And that's not how she identifies, but she identifies that way in this interview with some honky college student for the purpose of getting past the lies that we say out loud so that we can sound like a good person. So so you can say to the mob, hey, hey, I'm on your side. You don't have to go after me. Listen to this interview from Savannah Hernandez. I, I grew up as a white man, and you, you're the exact opposite, you know? And so it's like my experiences are going to be different from yours. How come? I think, uh, you know, there's a thing of, like, white privilege. Uh, what privileges do you have that I don't have? Oh, see, that's the question I keep asking myself because, like, in this day and age, like, all the laws, I say all the laws, you know, I'm, it's hard to speak on something I'm not fully knowledgeable of. So, like, I'm sorry if I, like, make KJP a mistake uh, in it. saying this. But it's like, like, uh, hmm. Don't you think it's a problem in society when white people think that they have more privileges than brown or black people? Yeah, and I think that's sort of the agenda that's pushed off because, personally, it's like, not that I think I'm more privileged than anyone else because I had to work to get where I was, and that's like... The so why do you have that mentality immediately where you, you know, kind of apologize to me, like, let's talk about privilege, let's talk about I'm a white man in America, so we could have grown up differently. I got you. Why, why is that your first initial reaction to me as a brown woman? Wow, you're getting me good. See, these are the kind of conversations that I love having, um, and... I think it comes from a place of, like, uh, I wouldn't say caution, but, like, in this day and age, people are so quick to judge and react and cancel. And so I guess it's that, that like, caution to go into an interview like this. I'm like, I, I don't know where we're at, but now I know where we're at, and I can, like, uh, go for real. Oh, I can go for real now. I know you're not going to attack me for being commonsensical and standing up to any identitarian blather that you may spew. So now I can tell you honestly what I think. I, I, I mean, we've asked this question so many times over the years, but I mean, is that really how you want to live like that kid? Is that how you want your son or daughter to grow up? Trepidation as he enters any conversation, particularly with a person of color? Yeah, and when he realized she wasn't woke, he, then you know, a, oh, yeah, he was no, comfortable no. to stop with the virtue signaling. He just, right, you know. now we can have a conversation right. like two oh, human sure. beings. I'm in a safe space, okay. You, you really want that to be how our society operates. We need to, you tell a lie, and then I indulge that lie until we both agree that we're lying. And now we can talk like human beings. Is that how you want your interactions to be? Frank, Arlington Heights. Good morning, Dan and Amy. This is Russell Crowe, greatest actor of all time. I won Best Actor for A Beautiful Mind in 2001, and also Wonderful Gladiator, of course, in 2000. It was my signature movie. And uh, you just mentioned, one of your previous callers had mentioned uh, mentioned being in my, you mentioned my character, Maximus. Great character in that movie. Real man. Real, real strong man. Went up against uh, Commodus. Terrible emperor, great fighter. Of course, the, the, the great emperor he was serving was Marcus Aurelius. And I think the question we have to ask right now is, are we at the end of the Pax Americana like, like they were at the end of the Pax Romana at that time? It's 
the question. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> Um, did you, I actually, um, the most recent, not your most recent movie because Poker Face was awful, but, um, sorry. Um, no, it was awful. It was, was, was very bad. Un unhinged. How about unhinged? Did you, you channel the uh, Russell Crowe that throws telephones out the windows of hotel rooms for that role? Actually, yes. You know, sometimes personal experience in your life actually, actually helps your, your acting. It does. But I can't always help what the, what the screenplay is. It's not, it's, I don't write screenplays. All right, so um, so c can you like uh, I want to see like, I want to understand here the um, give me a Mel Gibson versus a Russell Crowe since they're both Aussies. Can you do a Mel Gibson? Frank. Frank. Oh, we did we lose Frank. Back. Yeah. Oh, Frank. Oh, yeah, Frank. Oh, Frank. All right, so Mel Gibson versus Russell Crowe. Mel, Gip Mel Gibson versus I can't do Mel Gibson. No, no. I can't. All right. I, I mean, wanted to see if you I'll, could I'll, I'll perform. We can't perform for you on demand. Well, well, I mean, I know you know he practices these obviously, and I wanted to see like if he could, if there's the nuance in the Australian dialect that he could nail. That's all. You know. I love I love Mel Gibson's uh, Apocalypto though. I'll tell you that that was a great movie. Yeah, it was a good movie. He was a, yeah. He was uh, and then Payback too was good. And but, your uh, uh, you guys uh, have a good. Yeah, that, and, your, and your Russell your Russell Crowe question, your question as Russell Crowe, we end every and the at the end of Pax Americana, that's a good one. It's an operative one. No, thanks for the call, Frank. Appreciate it. Uh huh. Ryan New Lennox. Hey Dan and Amy, thanks for taking my call. the The other thing that I think is important to mention here is this kid's insistence on using the word conversation, and oh, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Thank you for engaging in this conversation. You also hear that from, like, every politician, including so many Republicans. Glenn Youngkin did an interview on the trans issue uh, I saw last week, uh, or, a, like, a, some kind of yeah, public Yeah, CNN forum. Town Hall, yeah. Yeah, and, and he's just on and on about thank you for engaging in this conversation. Can we just cut out all that crap in the middle and actually start talking about underlying premises, or are we going to still hover on the surface? and thank each other for the courage to say something to their fellow man. I think it's ridiculous. Totally agree. Thanks for the call, Ryan. You know what, you know what thank you for the conversation means? What? It means I'm uncomfortable with this conversation. <laughs> That's what it means. I don't want to have this conversation. Right. You're making me uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to converse. <laughs> and you can understand, but, but the other side, uh, they, they will triple down on triple threats, on die, and boy, if there was ever a better uh, rearranged acronym for me than that, I don't know what it was, because that's what it is. It's a cultural, societal killer, die, and it's a religion. I'd like to enter this as Exhibit A in the case that it is so. Oklahoma State Representative Regina Goodwin testifying uh, before a House committee on education-related matters in Oklahoma, the State uh, Board of Education chairman. Listen to what she says about DAI and her response to any pushback against it, because, you know, Oklahoma is a conservative state, so there's pushback. She's in a distinct minority, and I'm not talking about because of race. I'm talking about her viewpoint on this. But do you think that inhibits her at all in Oklahoma? That's uh, very uh, disturbing, to say the least. 
when we have, again, a state superintendent who does not want to have anything to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI is in deity. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is God. Thank you for your debate. DEI uh, as in deity. Diversity, equity, inclusion is God. Um, any questions? So do you get a better sense of the urgency of the situation from comments like that from a state legislator? Helping you along? You seeing what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Tim in Woodstock. Hi, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. You know, I, I had a laugh when I heard KGP say that this didn't happen by accident. I, I don't think anybody uh, is really under the illusion that it happened by accident. Um, she, she was most certainly told by some white lefty behind the scenes to make sure that everybody knew that uh, this, these boxes were being checked. And um, it's going to take it's going to take black people themselves, like like the um, lady we heard in interviewing that that young man, um, to say enough is enough. That, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to go out in front of the cameras and um, and preach the God that that sort of gospel that you want me to preach anymore. We're we're done with it. We're done with the uh, condescending. That that's what's going to end it. Thanks, Tim. Uh, George in Naperville. Dan, I could do a uh, uh, Mel Gibson. What's up, sugar tits? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I hope that was dumb. To presume it was uh, not that Mel Gibson. I knew I, something from Road Warrior. Something from you know, Braveheart. Pas- maybe passion. Braveheart. Yes. Not not Mel Gibson. And you know, at dinner. I. Uh, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> One of those days. Oh. Right, we need a cleansing breath after that. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, which election is most important to you of the elections that occur on April 4th? Is it the Chicago mayor's race? Or is it your local municipal races, particularly school board? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. What do you think will have the most impact on your quality of life, particularly if you have kids still in school, K through 12, that is? Barrington District 220. A uh, guy named Joe Lazar, uh, who has an organization called Vision 2020, has been posting online about uh, what's going on in Barrington 220. Good stuff. And uh, here's um, some of the recent testimony at school board meetings from parents in Barrington 220. And interestingly, and on an encouraging note, a lot of parents showing up at these District 220 school board meetings to talk about the kind of content 
in the classroom and the library in 220. For example, uh, here are some parents describing the porn that is available for grades 3 through 5 in Barrington, District 220. Grades 3 through 5, all about romantic and sexual feelings and masturbation. How is it age appropriate to require 6 through 8 graders to define vagina, anal, and oral sex? No part of these standards are acceptable. Um, first of all, both of these books are openly uh, anti-Christian. Um, this book is gay, goes as far as to say that David, from David and Goliath, was, a, was homosexual. There's a chapter called The Ins and Outs of Gay Sex, where the author talks about jobs, jobs, detailed descriptions, even goes as far as to give instructions on how to clean out your rectum prior to having homosexual anal sex. That's not wholesome. That, that's not the half of it, though. Let's get to the glossary. We have um, a glory hole. Do you know what a glory hole is? How about uh, rimming or scat? Apparently scat, I learned this from this book. Scat is apparently eating poop. Scissor sisters? Are you all out of your minds with this? Are they? Does any of that make you uncomfortable? I mean, if you're uncomfortable or you're surprised to hear it on our airwaves, think how surprised you'd be if your kids were being instructed on it. We're in the primary grades. Kids' minds at such a young age. It's uncomfortable to hear as an adult. I cannot even imagine. Take yourselves back, people, to when you were in third and fifth grade. Are you or, kidding me? This is or, the devil. Or when your kids were. Yeah. If they're not currently. Another mom. You know what these books are about. You've seen them. They're way too graphic for kids. At a young age, you can ask any clinical psychologist. Kids aren't supposed to be seeing this. How many in this room could stand up right now and tell me you don't want your kids to see this in school? And when she asked how many in this room would stand up and say you don't want this, everybody in the room stood up. I mean, except the school board members, right, of course. Of course. Right. <laughs> no, not them. Uh huh. Now, to offer the other side, here's a uh, culturally Marxist mom in Barrington defending the books and the lessons that you just heard other parents describing. I'm advocating for the right for my children to have access to books they may eventually want to seek out. We should not be spending our time trying to censor, ban, or erase the experiences of an already vulnerable population. <laughs> um, really? So um, why not have, like, hardcore porn in the libraries and in the classrooms? Because, you know, kids may eventually seek this out. Why wait? Right, Mom? The board members there, because there's a school board election there. And there are three candidates that are challenging the incumbents. Board members that are uh, pro-porn in Barrington 220. Meet Leah Collister-Lazari. As a board member, it's not my job to screen books. There's many, many books in the library. We have qualified staff, qualified librarians. Anybody else? Yeah, it's experts. Oh, yeah. It's the, we have the experts. I, 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 who am I to substitute my judgment? Who are you, mom and dad, to substitute your judgment for the experts we have on staff? And this is why Governor Pritzker wants to control the, who the librarians are and who the school board members are. Putting the, a half million dollars into it. 
the board president, Barrington 220, mm-hmm. a woman named Sandra Ficky Bradford. Uh, what she hears when parents are testifying about what their kids have brought home, what she hears and sees is good reference material. Barry, I kind of felt like th- about this one, like you felt about the other one. I kind of, I thought it was a good reference, and um, uh, I thought it might be it would serve more than just the LGBTQ community. It talks a lot about safe sex and 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 what's appropriate and and things like that. So I think there was a lot in that book, not just for um, the LGBTQ community. Yeah, for everyone uh, who wants to sexualize children in any which direction, in every direction. It's not just for the LGBTQ anymore. And she mentioned uh, Barry because she's enlisting another Barrington 220 school board member, Dr. <clears throat> Barry Altshuler, who's a pediatrician, as I understand it. Well, uh, Dr. Barry Altshuler and the rest of the board were treated to a parent who uh, referenced the guidance by the American Academy of Pediatrics on the topic. And by the way, the American Academy of Pediatrics we've discussed on this show previously, they're a ghastly, woke organization uh, when it comes to COVID, when it comes to all the identitarian business. Yeah, they're pushing puberty blockers, which can harm children. Right, but even a ghastly organization like the American Academy of Pediatrics that's been completely taken over by Marxists, even they won't go as far as the Barrington 220 school board will. What does that tell you? Take a listen. First to the parent and then enter the good doctor, Barry Altshuler. The American Association of Pediatrics strongly cautions against exposing children to pornographic content. American Academy of Pediatrics. This is one of the country's leading authority on pediatric care. This is just one of many credible sources you might want to research on porn exposure versus kids' mental health. Quote, sexual predators have purposefully exposed young children to pornography for the purpose of grooming children for sexual exploitation. Pornography exposure at these young ages often results in anxiety for the child. Children also report feeling of disgust, shock, embarrassment, anger, fear, and sadness after viewing pornography. These children can suffer all of the symptoms of anxiety and depression. They may become obsessed with acting out adult sexual acts that they have seen, and this can be very disruptive and disturbing to the child's peers who witness or are victimized by this behavior. Children under 12 years old who have viewed pornography are statistically more likely to sexually assault their peers. In sum, Children exposed to pornographic material are at risk for a broad range of maladaptive behavior and psychopathology. So if your child, your teenager, uh, has a good friend who's having some uh, gender issues, and it doesn't have to be genderqueer, it could be somebody who, who is uh, gay or, or a lesbian, uh, a book like this would be very helpful for them so they can support their friends. Uh, and I think it's very important that we have these kinds of books available in our library. There are, this is a, a um, I, I, I guess I call it mature themes, but it's not, mat- it's not too mature for our high school kids. No, of course not. Oh, my God. Of course not. There's no way, better way to support your friend 
than to be well-versed in how to clean out your rectum before you have anal sex. That's how you support your friends. Right? Who are these ghastly devils? I mean, they've got to be defeated on April 4th. There's a book called Flamer that's featured uh, in Barrington 220. Parents, you may want to pick it up. Uh, One dad spoke to the board about it. And then enter Dr. Altshuler again, the good doctor. The first in Flamer, there is a part of this book where a bunch of boys masturbate into a bottle. And they say that whichever boy does not ejaculate has to drink the bottle. Now, can any of you look at this crowd and objectively say that that is not obscene? I have to talk about Flamer just for a second, okay? I am not Filipino. I am not in the closet. I am not Christian. I was never in the Boy Scouts. And this book spoke to me. The book Flamer spoke to Dr. Barry Altshuler, who's a pediatrician. Uh, Anybody up in Barrington taking their kids to Dr. Barry? What else is going on in the schools? Not just in terms of content, but in terms of what that one mom was speaking to about the impact on this sort of instruction with pornography on uh, these young fertile minds. Apparently, uh, it's uh, Caligula. Gore Vidal would blanch at what's going on in Barrington 220, according to what some parents are reporting. First of all, my middle school son has a kid that repeatedly masturbates in the classroom. My daughter, again a middle schooler, had two things happen to her. She was in the girls' bathroom stall going to the bathroom and two stalls over she heard noises. Sounded like boys, she said. So she finished up and started to head to the sink when her friend walked in and went towards that stall. (coughs) The door was now open. She saw two boys having oral sex in the stall. Is that why you moved to Barrington? This is Is, Barrington. Is that what you want uh, your daughter to experience in the bathroom at school? They should have called the cops. 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. Apparently, this is all in furtherance of uh, providing the kids with good reference material, making sure kids are allies to their friends. That's what uh, Leah Collister-Lazari and board president Sandra Ficky bradford and the good doctor, pediatrician Barry Altshuler, seem to think. What do you think? I don't want to be a prude here. Maybe I've got it all wrong. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Sean and Darian, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Um, hi, Dan, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so school district 86, Hinsdale. I might get to go to Hinsdale South. Uh, obviously, April 4th is the election, and I've been told by several people that Captain with the C... C-A-T-T-O-N, Greenspan, um, are the two, for sure, conservatives need to vote in. So, And then this gallo is in the middle of the road. I guess there's three spots to fill. So two, three, and four should be the ones to vote for. One of five are lefties, big time. As a matter of fact, the mayor of Darien is, um, is uh, endorsing the older woman, number one, uh, candidate number one, and she is far left. I mean, so that tells you a little bit about what our local politics is. 
Thanks for the call, Sean. Appreciate that info. D86 in Hinsdale. Punch uh, candidates listed 2, 3, and 4. According to Sean, we're trying to get to as many as we can. Barrington 220, there are three candidates that are running that, uh, based on good information I have, should be the candidates who earn your votes. They're not on the Caligula program for the classrooms and bathrooms at Barrington 220. Leonard Munson. Mm Mm-hmm. Matt Sheriff, Katie Baldassano. Munson, Sheriff, Baldassano. Remember uh-huh. those names. Yeah. And if you've never voted, your kids don't have to go to school in order for you to have a voice or have a vote. You can just live in Barrington and vote. Are you surprised by this? Uh, not just in Barrington. Are you surprised to hear what's happening in Barrington? <clears throat> Add in Glen Ellen. The League of Women Voters had a panel huh. for the dis- District 87 uh, candidates in Glen Ellen uh, Elementary and Middle School, and it, they, I think, I think there were nine candidates. Out of all of them, they were asked, you know, should the what should the the board's role be in in curriculum and all that, and every one of them said, leave it up to the educators. We we won't. We will rely entirely on on educators to decide curriculum, and we won't step on their toes. And I got to be honest, it was difficult for me to pick out anybody. Everybody is so afraid to answer the question the way it really needs to be answered. I mean, obviously, you could pick out the extreme, the the, the radicals and the and the way they spoke. But even I think there's some moderates on there. But it was really hard to. <laughs> to figure out from that discussion who who to vote for. Well, that's a failure of those candidates then. Ed. Thanks for the call. I appreciate that. D87 and Glen Ellen. Here are the three candidates I understand that should be supported. But um, to Ed's point, if these candidates aren't making it clear how they're separate and distinct from the perspective of the other candidates, um, if they're even bothering to participate in a Plague of Women Vipers forum, is there a worse organization than the League of Women Voters? I know there's a lot of competition, but they're right near the top. What a joke that, that organization is. You think that's a nonpartisan organization? Do you, do you still believe that? Do people know anything about the League of Women Voters? That they is an organization <laughs> that is in, entitled to zero legitimacy. That is a hard left pro Marxist organization run by awfuls. Angry white leftist women, females. Angry white leftist females, awfuls. Um, District 87, three candidates I have here in my little cheat sheet. Okay, what do you got? For the two-year two term, Gendrus. For the four-year term, Wilharm and Kenwood. If Wilharm you, and Kenwood. Okay. Yeah. If you want a, a little bit more math and reading and a little bit less anal sex, Seems like those are the candidates that uh, to to be supported in District 87. I gave you the 220 candidates. That's up to you. I mean, go either way on it. I know it's a tough call. Lee and Hammond. Hey guys, you know, can somebody please explain to me why it is in order to teach young pre-adolescent kids to be tolerant, it's necessary to teach them different kinds of sexual practices they probably in the normal world wouldn't be getting involved with for maybe another 10, 15 years. Why is it they have to take this and do this to young children? That's a great question, Lee. Why is that? There must be some motivation. Gosh, I, I wonder what it is. Do you think it's uh, just a 
philosophical difference in pedagogy, do you think? Is there something maybe a little bit more political and cultural about what these political activists masquerading as academics or educators are doing? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Today at 3, right before Sean Thompson at 4 on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the uh, House passed a... uh, Resolution calling for the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, President Biden, to declassify declassified information as to the origins of the covid virus, Uh, perhaps uh, provide more detail to the report out of the Department of Energy uh, on the information that led the Department of Energy to conclude that the virus originated in the Wuhan virology lab, the lab leak. Uh, KJP. One of the best and brightest, so she says about herself, the human, the White House spokesman, was asked about this. Well, so what's POTUS going to do? Is it going to declassify? You're thinking about it. Well, the president signed the legislation that would declassify information about the origins of COVID. So, look, um, I know that it was just passed, if I remember, if I remember correctly, it was just passed out of the House today, right? So we're taking a look at the bill. Uh, we have continued to share information, as I've mentioned many times before, with uh, members of Congress. And as you know, the first few months of the president's administration, he, uh, he, uh, he came into office. He directed the intelligence community to de- declassify information, uh, assessing or, uh, COVID origins, and to make that report uh, public to, uh, to, to American people, to the American people, because we know and he understands how important it is to get to the bottom of COVID oranges, we will, origins. We will continue to use every tool to figure out what happened here. Uh, while also protecting uh, classified information. Again, we're going to take a look at the bill. I just don't have anything to share on how we're going to move forward at this time. Also passed it unanimously. So why would President Biden not something that we're literally gonna, got no opposition in Congress? Uh, I totally understand. It is the right of the President of the United States to look at the legislation that are that is going to be coming before him, uh, and uh, we'll have more to share. I, I got an idea. Why don't we do it like uh, the FDA is going to do it with the Pfizer uh, vaccine trials and and parcel out this classified information, declassified, you know, over the course of the next 60 or 70 years. Maybe we could do that, you know, just slow walk it a bit. Right. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. For more on this, please be joined by Dr. Marty McCarry, professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, chief medical advisor to Sesame Care and author of the award-winning The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. McCarry, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, congratulations on uh, your testimony before that House Select Committee on COVID. That was uh, very powerful. You, along with uh, Dr. J and Dr. Martin Kaldorf, uh, was was great stuff. And we have appreciated your expertise over low these many years. We continue to appreciate that. So uh, what about um, the uh, release of the intelligence? I know you've called this a, a no-brainer uh, that this was a lab leak, but um, any reason there would be any hesitancy in releasing and declassifying information that relate to the origin relates to the origination? <laughs> I don't understand why you would classify anything related to the Wuhan lab origin. What, are we trying to protect the lab or, or 
protect China? I mean, wh- why would anything be confidential in, in a democracy like we have? So we need more transparency, not, you know, hiding behind the guise that we can't tell you this because it's classified. The reason this stuff it's, it's, has been deemed classified and not revealed is that it looks bad for Fauci. The only reason there's a debate about the Wuhan lab leak is that it's embarrassing that we were funding the lab. Uh, we also heard from uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, the former head of CDC, last week, and he uh, sort of uh, offered a revelation that uh, creates more questions around Fauci and Francis Collins about how he was cut out of email exchanges between Collins and Fauci and top virologists as to origination. Why would you cut the head of CDC out of those conversations? Maybe because he had a different instinct on the topic than did Fauci? Well, this is a well-known bureaucrat move in government, is if somebody disagrees with you, you cut them out of meetings, and then you create this little infrastructure of people gathering, and you convene the people you want who agree. And then if somebody disagrees outside of that, you say, well, we already have this big structure in place, and the experts have already met, and they already decided. That's exactly what happened. The only problem for Fauci is that three of the top virologists in the U.S. at that early meeting that he convened told him it came from a lab. One of them said, I don't see any other plausible explanation. And uh, two of those scientists changed their tune in, in four days, writing a puff piece for a medical journal. And so that is the weaponization of medical research itself. And I think that's what's going to look bad for Fauci at his hearing. But then he denied it, too. He said, no, I didn't. I had no part of that. So that's part of the lie and the cover-up, don't you think? The cover-up is, is, you know, worse than the actual event where he convened the experts. If he would have said, look, we convened the experts and they told me it was from a lab and I just had a different view. Instead, he basically got two of them to write a puff piece and then both of those received $9 million in NIH funding after the puff piece. So he's got a lot of explaining to do. And by the way, why not just come out and ban gain-of-function research or condemn it in all of perpetuity? We need a universal worldwide ban at this point. The fact that he's not asked for it or called for it uh, says a lot. I mean, he's kind of digging into his position. Well, wait a second. Uh, He just said recently that uh, you don't like gain-of-function research, Dr. Makari? Well, uh, the flu vaccine is the result of -of gain-of-function research, so there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, the flu vaccine is entirely different. The, when you get the flu vaccine, you're getting a piece of the protein coat of, of a flu virus. You're trying to figure out the protein coat. So it's totally different. Um, I, I think he's, look, he's desperate right now. This looks really bad. Also, what I'm not sure is completely uh, well-recognized among all of this sort of Fauci file stuff is that the night when he found out it came from the lab, he made an emergency call at 3 o'clock and wrote an email at 3 o'clock in the morning to the guy who oversees the gain-of-function committee. I mean, clearly he was panicking knowing that wrongdoing happened at the NIH. Uh, I I wonder what your reaction is to um, the um, lockdown files across the pond in the U.K. that have uh, former PM... Uh, Boris Johnson and and uh, former health director there, Matt Hancock, into in in some hot water. You know, the sort of subject to uh, 
a lot of hewing and crying right now about how they were looking at this through a political prism, uh, thinking about what this could mean for their political careers, how they had to manage information flow to manage the British people, which I, doesn't sound dissimilar to what happened here, particularly when, when Fauci famously told the New York Times, you know, I parcel out information about things like herd immunity as I believe the public can handle uh, the information. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of of two minds on it. One is uh, political actors behaving politically. That's not a surprise and attempting to scare the public for the aggrandizement of their power. But at the same time, there was wide swaths of the public, both in the U.K. and the U.S., that wanted to be scared. Well, um, Matt Hancock, who is basically sort of a Fauci equivalent over there, he's not a physician, but he led the public health efforts. This guy was has been littered in scandals. I mean, not only was he breaking the rules that he put forth on the people, but he had leaked evidently thousands of messages to the media, to, um, and and he has been the one sort of found to be um, sort of like Governor Cuomo insisting that people go to nursing homes. He he rejected the idea that you should test people before they go to nursing homes for COVID early on. So, you know, these guys are basically in a, in a quagmire right now, political scandal. Um, uh, you wrote this piece in the New York Post that we talked about on the show um, uh, the other week that I have now since laminated and I hang it around my neck. Uh, the, the, it was the 10 top myths that have now been debunked about uh, the COVID response and and the basis of the uh, response, the lockdown policies and mitigations and mandates and so forth. I, I wonder, as you uh, look back on the last three years, was there anything that was important that the uh, political power structure, the presidents and the public health people at the top, the Fauci's and the Burks's, w- was there anything they got right? <laughs> well, out of about 30 major public policies, maybe they got one or two of them right. And I would say at the beginning, you know, I supported the lockdowns early on because it was scary in New York. We didn't know what we were dealing with. But then it was very clear that young, healthy people had a 10,000-fold difference in risk. As a matter of fact, we don't know if any healthy child in the U.S. has ever died of COVID. The CDC won't tell us. It may have been one or five or zero, we don't know. So we imposed tremendous restrictions on 50 million children. You know, the hottest thing right now in medicine and academic medicine and in public policy and medicine, I would say are three topics, climate change and medicine, equity, and fighting misinformation. If you apply for grants, that's what the grants are looking for right now among our ivory tower elite in medicine. And I'm concerned about misinformation, too, but the biggest propagator of misinformation has been the United States federal government. I mean, telling people they had nothing to worry about uh, regarding COVID for months before it hit, telling people to wash their hands like crazy to stop the spread, telling people vaccinated immunity was better than natural immunity. I mean, telling people the lab leak was a conspiracy, masking toddlers, closing schools, bypassing the FDA customary advisory committee vote before approving boosters in young people, which should have never been approved. I mean, the government has spread a tremendous amount of misinformation, and it's not early on when they didn't know what was happening. 
it's digging in for years after the evidence has been apparent. Yeah. So, Do you think so, we'll ever get an apology? <laughs> I don't think so. I just don't think politicians are wired that way. Yeah. Um, so I, the, the top three priorities in, in medical care and public health, I, I didn't, did, did I miss it? Did you say quality and cost of care? Were those in the top three? <laughs> no, no. Ironically, um, they, they are not right now priorities in terms of what getting the funding and what hospital payments are based on from health and human services. So, I mean, beyond, I, I know uh, you've made this point, as have others, you know, one of the, th the byproducts of the government being the largest purveyor of misinformation and using fear-mongering is that you have a lot of people that are, you that were not anti-vax that you sort of turned into anti-vax because they don't trust the government, they don't trust the big pharma companies. Um, what are the other uh, you know, negative consequences in terms of our overall health care in America from the way that COVID was handled? Well, people aren't coming into the hospital anymore. We're telling them to do things. We're asking them to take medications. Um, they're, they're seeing advertisements uh, for medications. They are now um, anti-pharma. They're anti-government. They see the long arm of the government in promoting the misinformation that vaccine mandates were going to increase vaccination rates. They did not. George Mason University study found they didn't. What what it did is it hardened people and it created never vaxxers. I personally can tell you, I knew some high risk people where I was trying to convince them to get vaccinated early on. Mm -hmm. And when the mandates came out, they dug in hard. I might have been able to convince them they were probably on the fence. But when they saw a broken promise from Biden, who they didn't like for whatever reason, and say, we're not going to have vaccine mandates and then flip on that saying, you're going to lose your job and you already have circulating antibodies. Too bad. They're the kind that we don't like. Fauci doesn't approve of them. Those are from natural infection. That hardened people because it was academically and intellectually dishonest to tell people you, you have antibodies, but they're not the kind that we're going to recognize. They have to be antibodies produced by Pfizer or Moderna's product into your body. And that's where they just said, Okay, we're done with this. We don't trust you guys at all. Well, was anybody getting kickbacks from Pfizer or Moderna? It's amazing. You know, Fauci has done, what, 5,000 interviews in the media during the whole pandemic, and no one's ever asked him that question. Have you been paid by Pfizer or have you been paid by Moderna? Not a single journalist has ever asked him that question. Isn't that amazing? Well, now, Rand Paul asked him, and he basically, you know, wiggled around the question. Well, the problem is uh, the journalists, quote unquote, on all those shows, their shows are underwritten by Pfizer. So they don't, they don't want to upset their sponsor, uh, as we saw. Um, I wonder, too, this is sort of a stop looking listen question that we've asked before. But, you know, at this point now, within professional circles, and we asked uh, Martin Calderf this last week, too. Do you see any um, contrition? I mean, and I don't mean formally I apologize and all that. I just mean anybody walking it back and say, boy, you know what? We got a lot wrong. I got a lot wrong. And we need to learn the lessons of this. We need to not go down some of the roads we went down again. We need to think about how we repair our legitimacy in the eyes of a large number of Americans, our patients. Are those conversations happening uh, within your professional circles? No, it's 
quite honestly, Dan, the opposite, where people are saying, oh, I, I wasn't for closing schools. I was actually against them. Or I wasn't for masking toddlers. I actually thought that was excessive. When they were totally pushing to arrest surfers in California and close parks in Michigan, I mean, the, the, the medical establishment knows nothing about business, poverty, education, and yet they shut it all down for two and a half years in some places. And when you look in the final analysis of a country that was open free and clear with some basic precautions for older people and, and high-risk people, Sweden, and you compare that to Michigan, which had the same, has the exact same population and the same number of older people, Michigan had double the deaths with some of the most restrictive policies in the country. And so there's this denial right now and this almost sort of revisionist history that everyone's coming out. Because, you know, when Jay and Martin and I were talking about this stuff two years ago, it was a lonely place. Yeah. You know, we were getting canceled. And now it's a bandwagon. Everyone's coming out and saying, oh, I wasn't for the lockdowns. I supported schools being open. Not true. They're still going through the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, perhaps. They're just at the denial phase, so maybe there's hope. Uh, Dr. Marty Makari, professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Bloomberg School of Public Health, chief medical advisor to Sesame Care and author of the award-winning The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. Makari, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I have a question about the Chicago mayor's race, but uh, before we get to that, since we were talking a little bit at the beginning of the show about uh, March Madness, I uh, did, and uh, also that includes the uh, IHSA state title games over the weekend. Yeah, where, sorry, your guys lost. Yeah, Bennett lost to Moline. They got uh, two uh, kids going to Iowa that uh, were tough, apparently. Um, and Simeon lost to Metamora, too. That was a bit of a surprise, but. Uh, speaking of IHSA and March Madness, connecting the two, that's what I do, connect dots. Caden Pierce. Caden Pierce was part of that uh, Glenbard West team that won the state title last year, one of the best teams in the history of high school basketball in Illinois. Yep. And he is, I didn't realize this, but I was watching the, um, the uh, Ivy League championship game, conference championship game, to see who would get the Ivy League berth. And Princeton beat Yale. I knew he went to Princeton. I didn't know... Caden Pierce was Rookie of the Year in the Ivy League, oh. and he had uh, 12 points and 10 boards. He's pretty good. He's, I think he's only 6'5", uh, in that game where Princeton beat Yale. So congratulations to uh, Glenbard West, Caden Pierce, who uh, makes his first tournament appearance after being Rookie of the Year in the Ivy League. Good so that's good. Him. Yeah, it's positive. All right, so here's my question about the mayor's race. Yes. So in March of 2021, Governor Spaulding... He's from Illinois. He's governor of Illinois. Um, he said, quote, I'm genuinely considered to be the most progressive governor in the Midwest, if not the country right now. He said that just two years ago. Yeah, I remember him saying that. So why isn't this leading light of the left backing BLM Brandon? 
CTUs on board, SAIUs on board, uh, the Massachusetts squaw, Lizzie Warren, she's on board. I saw over the weekend Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who is one of the out and proud socialists on the city council, uh, noted that he's endorsed BLM Brandon along with 12 Dem state legislators who are also proud socialists mm-hmm. like Will Gazzardi and Mary Flowers and Teresa Ma. Andreas on the alderman for the 50th Ward. Yeah, he's all The over. list goes on and on. All the socialists, all those progressives, you say progressive, I say socialist because I'm accurate, are on board. And where is the leading light of the left in the nation, according to him, Governor Pritzker? Why so quiet? He's endorsed city council candidates. Why wouldn't he endorse Brandon Johnson along with his socialist allies i'm perplexed help me 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line 64636da turnkey.pro text line and they said they're not going to endorse anybody they meaning him juliana stratton um uh they're just going to and both of our senators duckworth and durbin said they're Why? Not going to endorse they're all anybody. proud Leftists. There's got to be Brandon Johnson is a proud leftist. Paul Vallis is a closet Republican, according to proud leftist BLM Brandon. So what is the confusion? What is the choice? I mean, he, you're you've got a uh, BLM supporter. Mm-hmm. You've got an out and proud Marxist in Brandon, and that's who you say you are. He's black. Paul Vallis is a honky. We play identitarian politics in Illinois. I, what is the choice? What's the confusion? I don't know. I, I, It's very peculiar to me that they're sitting this one out. And also, too, huh. I mean, Governor Pritzker lives in Chicago. So he is yes. a resident. He has a vote. So yes. even if you didn't ask him as governor, I wanted to follow up. Well, as a citizen, who do you like? But nobody asked that. Cause well, he's uh, in Chicago and he's not in Wellington or north of the Cheddar Curtain or uh, or, or in uh, the Caymans visiting his money that he's in Illinois. Right. I just I I don't understand because I know from the left that Jelly Belly Spalding is the uh, is the real deal. He's authentic. Right. He's honest and honorable. So why wouldn't you ally with your allies? I don't get it. What possibly could it be? Well, I found out that Mayor Lightfoot gave her opposition research to Brandon Johnson. On Paul Vallis. Well, that makes sense because triple threat is an identitarian Marxist. No, you know so what? she is folding in with her fellow travelers. Why won't JB? What I think, why she's supporting Brandon Johnson secretly by giving him this, she wants mass, what do you always say, maximum destruction. Because with Paul Vallis, things are going to get better. But with Brandon Johnson, it's going to worse get worse, and that's going to make her look better. Oh, that she's going. She's going to make a comeback in twenty seven. Is she? You never know. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. I don't know. I just this is about JB, right? Because I, I want to hear from the JB voters. Because these are you know honorable people who supported an honorable leftist. This is what they believe. This is their standard bearer in Illinois, in, in the nation. Perhaps, according to him, gosh, it's just a a riddle. It's a conundrum. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey depro answer line. You could also reach us 
on our text line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I mean, Brandon is being honest about who he is for the yeah. most part. Uh, and I appreciate that from BLM Brandon. I just would expect the same authenticity from someone who is so forthright, who has been such an inspirational leader, who's done such great things for Illinois by hewing to the leftist line. And yet he's nowhere to be found. How can a, a national leader like J.B. Pritzker be AWOL? Huh. I just can't. I just don't. It, you know, I'm I'm starting to lose faith in J.B. Pritzker as a honest to good. Progressive new Marxist in stand in, you know, new card carrying new Marxist. And and if, if we can't count on J.B. Pritzker to advance the flag with the hammer and sickle, then who can we count on? Aren't you concerned about J.B.? I am. Tony Downers Grove. Hey, Dan. Um, I guess people can talk about the mayor race all they want, but at the end of the day, the black the black voters are going to vote. They're going to vote for Brandon Johnson, and I'm sorry to say that, but it's just a it's just a fact. He's a bit, that that going to lose by at least three or four points. No, the latest poll has Paul him. Tony. I mean, Brandon Johnson. The latest poll, he's creeping in on Paul Vallis. Only six points separate them. Hmm. It was before it was twelve, hmm. and I just feel like the sh- there's a shift in the air that Bre- like there there's a shift for Brandon Johnson. Even more reason. For J.B. Pritzker. I just want to understand the J.B. Pritzker phenomenon. I can't explain it. I, there's got to be, I mean, there's something what there. Possibly what possibly could there? it be? What Gosh. could it be? Can help me out. Again, you have to start from the premise, the things that we all know are true. Yeah. He's authentic. Okay. He's honest. Oh, yeah. He's courageous. Oh, very courageous. Um, he is uh, committed to the agenda of the new Marxists that have, wrestled control of all of our cultural institutions and in Illinois, all institutions, period. So, I mean, uh, you know, I just, I'm just so disappointed. Aren't you? Aren't your friends on the left disappointed in JB? Kevin, Austin, Texas. Uh, Dan, I just want to say I'm just amazed how you can be so articulate with your tongue firmly implanted into your cheek as you say these things. (laughs) We all know that Pritzker is just a political opportunist. What? He does have his ideology, ideology, but this doesn't play out to his uh, presidential aspirations. He can't be seen as somebody who's seen seen as supporting a socialist. Wait a second. No, but he is I think a that's what it might be. I mean, I may be wrong. I may be what wrong. A, wait, Kevin, you're telling me that the guy who said all I ever wanted to be was governor um, or, or a member of Congress or the attorney general or the treasurer or, or the secretary of state, whatever. You're telling me that guy is some sort of political opportunist? What? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, oh, a Chicago politician is a political opportunist. I mean, I know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stretch and it's never happened before. But I think it might be the case. I mean, thanks for the call. Well, if maybe. you can't believe in the ideological altruism 
of a J.B. Pritzker, then I, I you know, I, what, there's no Santa Claus? Is that what you're going to tell me next? <laughs> Maybe he's uh, staying out of it because Paul Vallis quoted him and praised him for his view on Ron DeSantis. That he's a right-wing extremist, remember? In that press release, I exactly. stand with Governor Pritzker. So now exactly. maybe Pritzker doesn't feel like he should support Brandon Johnson because of that nice comment that Vallis Right, had. right. He's get, he got buttered up by Paul Vallis, and that's yeah. what the basis on which J.B. Pritzker makes his decisions. I mean, I agree that he makes his decisions based on butter, but I don't know that he's listening very closely to Paul Vallis's rhetoric as Paul Vallis tries to credentialize himself by flying in formation with the men and women of the left of always here. I don't know about that. Mark Plainfield. Uh, good morning, Dan and Amy. I hate to echo the sentiments of, the, of uh, what was it, Kevin in Austin, but uh, not only do I think uh, he's going to run for president, and as someone who plans to vote for Trump a third time in 24, there's a real realistic possibility that Pritzker will be the president. He, mm. uh, thanks for the comment. He said, I am the leading, perhaps the leading voice of progressivism in the country right now. That's the market position he wants to occupy. He uh, needs to be that guy. Uh, particularly when you get to states with a heavy black population that dominate the Democrat primary, like South Carolina. What, what's he doing? I'm so, so confused. Uh, someone who wants to remain anonymous. Oh, go ahead. Hello? Hello? Hello, Hi. you're on, anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, right. So I actually was at the Illinois Education Association Representative Assembly last week oh. on Thursday and Friday. And J.B. Pritzker actually spoke for about 10 minutes um, on Friday. I thought it was interesting that there was actually no press there because normally when the governor comes and speaks at that event, there is some press coverage associated with it. And when he was giving in his remarks, he actually did say something about Brandon Johnson and supporting Brandon Johnson. So while he may not be saying things publicly to the particular audience that would support has, you know, come out and supported him anyway, he has shown support for him. Well, imagine that among all those teachers union folks that he would say that exactly. endorsed Brandon Johnson. Imagine that he would do that. But thanks for the call. I appreciate that, uh, that inside info. And of course, the press doesn't need to cover the IEA meeting because the IEA will just tell them what to print that came out of that meeting. They don't have to do any legwork there. They're the comm shop of organizations like the IEA and CTU. But I mean, so, so you're saying that, that, that J.B. Pritzker is some sort of typical fork-tongued politician who will tell the teachers unions what they want to hear and then go behind closed doors with leftist Democrats in C-suites and law firm boardrooms and tell them what they want to hear to try to have it both ways? What? That would suggest that J.B. Prisker is not a man of high character. Uh, we can't be talking about the same J.B. Pritzker. Right? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more, you listen. The more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer. On AM 560, The Answer. 
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So as panic was spreading after Silicon Valley Bank collapsed at the end of last week, there was the typical misreporting by a D.C. press corps that is financially illiterate and disinterested in fact-checking. And so they got something wrong that uh, I posted about over the weekend. Uh, the quote-unquote contagion was allegedly spreading, and the reporting was on Signature Bank in New York. As we talked about with Chris Whalen early in the program, Signature Bank in New York had a unique issue, just like Silicon Valley Bank had a unique issue. They were different unique issues. The Signature Bank in New York unique issue was their position in crypto. But Signature Bank of New York is not Signature Bank of Chicago. They're completely different banks. And ABC News used the logo from Signature Bank of Chicago in reporting about Signature Bank of New York, which, of course, created all kinds of consternation among Signature Bank of Chicago clients because they saw the logo on uh, Clinton Foundation Donor Zero's Sunday program in the reporting. Completely different. Uh, both in terms of the actual institutions as well as how they operate. And Signature Bank of Chicago has none of the problems that these other banks have had over the last several days. So we wanted to get our friend Kevin Bastuga, who's the co-founder of Signature Bank of Chicago, on to talk more about this and set the record straight. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Amy. Good to talk to you guys. Um, I, I thought what you and your co-founders, Mick and Brian, did over the weekend was really smart, too. Um, this may be only something I assume only Signature Bank uh, clients saw, but you sent out an email detailing this and also providing your personal phone numbers in case any banking clients had any questions so you could stop some of uh, any panic that was afoot before it started. Right. Um, you know, after the, <clears throat> excuse me, the misreporting uh yesterday morning that kind of <laughs> set some things in motion and and we felt like we needed to get out ahead of any yeah. story that was that was going to happen with signature bank new york um obviously none of us thought that um the fdic was going to shut down uh you know a, over a hundred billion dollar bank at five thirty on a sunday night it was fairly surprising but right. um yeah we're, we've been trying to message to our our clients and just people in the Chicago market in general that, um, you know, we're a separate and distinct institution. We're chartered in the state of Illinois. Signature Bank New York was obviously chartered in New York. Um, <clears throat> but we want to assure people that our capital ratio, our liquidity ratio, our balance sheet is extremely strong. Um, and I think, you know, in times like these, communication is key. So appreciate you guys uh, allowing me to come on. Yeah, well, what happened with Signature Bank New York? You know, Amy, that kind of remains to be seen. Um, I, I, I talked to Dan yesterday, and there's, I think I think the Wall Street Journal did a really good job in their Saturday front page article on Silicon Valley, um, sort of detailing what happened there and the dominoes that fell. As far as Signature Bank New York goes, um, I think what the regulators saw was probably people taking big short sell positions um, or a attempting to over the weekend and assumed that it was going to be a bloodbath this morning as far as their stock price, um, which, like with Silicon Valley Bank, in turn caused um, depositors to, to panic and essentially run on the bank. So I think 
they were anticipating that. Um, it, it remains to be seen whether there were a ton of inherent credit issues with the bank meeting bad loans, but uh, I think the postmortem on that is going to come out rather quickly. Well, that's another important distinction. Uh, Signature Bank Chicago, your bank, privately held, locally run. Exactly right. Exactly right. And this uh, this weekend did nothing but reaffirm the fact that the uh, the three of us want nothing to do with being publicly traded, especially with the uh, the speed at which information travels with the 24-hour news cycle. Um, it's as we saw yesterday morning with the misreporting on ABC News, um, we had to get out in front of this before it took on a life of its own. Yeah, and that, and 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 this, you're talking about the speed of information, and that was really key. I mean, arguably, uh, Silicon Valley Bank wasn't; um, it didn't necessarily have to go the way that it went. But when there was a um, a, 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 a call to shore up a billion and eight in losses that Silicon Valley Bank experienced by having to sell bonds before their maturity, that created panic. And then that panic spread to the Twitter, which spread to all, you know, the VC community, which caused this run on bank, the run, which caused the run on that bank. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, their, their deposit base is pretty unique, right? There's a lot of um, obviously VC firms that were banking with Silicon Valley Bank because they've been in that tech market for a long time. And they were really kind of um, first ones on the, on the frontier of that business. Um, so they had a lot of depositors that were extremely substantial in terms of the amount that they had deposited. And um, naturally, people that are in the VC business uh, choose to take, um, to take risk with their investments, and they're very risky. So they, they certainly don't want to take risk with their deposits. Yeah, and, and again, Silicon Valley Bank, just to distinguish it, not all banks are created equally, operate the same, have the same customer base, and this is important to understand. Um, Silicon Valley Bank, by its very nature, as you were describing, um, they had a, a, a lot of their deposits were from IPOs and SPAC deals. In fact, uh, the Wall Street Journal reported Silicon Valley Bank banked almost half of all IPO proceeds in the last two years. Um, and so that's just a very different client base and dynamic than, say, Signature Bank of Chicago has. Correct. Very different. Um, you know, they had they had a massive influx of cash uh, in the last 18 months via that those IPO deposits, which in turn caused them to invest in the bond market like most banks do. We certainly do as well. Um and with a rising interest rate environment, bonds that were purchased in 2020, 2021, 2022 um, have an inherent unrealized loss. And they were forced to sell those bonds to generate liquidity to fund the deposit outflows. And, and it just created, a, I guess, a death spiral, if you will. So what is that? See, is that is that something ahead. is that something management should have seen? I mean, obviously, um, they understand that uh, bond prices and interest rates uh, have an inverse relationship. And so uh, should they have been caught in that predicament or was this sort of in a, was it was it moral hazard created by, you know, government policy over the, the last several years? Um, was it mismanagement? Was it a combination of the two? I think it's some combination of the two, Dan. I, I, it's tough to say, um, you know, without 
without really getting into the organization and talking to people about how it was managed. Um, Certainly there's been a lot of press over the weekend about the rate at which the Fed raised interest rates, which caused this unrealized loss on a lot of banks' balance sheets. Um, what, What I don't think anybody could have predicted was the speed of the outflow of cash. Um, I mean, I've seen a couple different numbers, but uh, Thursday at Silicon Valley Bank could not have been a fun day. Um, and with the with the level of automation that customers have uh, and access to their funds, um, the, the money was flowing out by wires that people were generating on their mobile apps. So really, when you talk about the speed at which this happened, it's it's incredible. But you know what's incredible, too? <clears throat> According to NBC News, they said that the bosses gave themselves a bonus check on Wednesday. Everybody got a bonus check. I did see that, and, yeah. I, and I, I didn't see the article. I did hear that, um, and I'm, don't quote me on this. I, I don't know for sure, but supposedly the CEO of the bank had been unloading shares over the last couple of weeks. So Yeah, $3.5 million dollars worth. A pretty big indication of... <laughs> Of moral yeah. hazard, um, but there's going to be there's going to be some questions that need to be answered there. Yeah, the what, shares used to be six hundred dollars, and now they're nothing. Well, what's uh, what, what, so? What's your handle on uh, the banking sector right now in in Chicago, which obviously you know intimately, and and to the extent you have comment generally nationally. Yeah, I think um, you know it's. It, what what the regulators are trying to do um, and, and what they tried to do in closing Signature Bank last night with, with such speed is to just stabilize uh, the perception of the strength of the system, right? So uh, the Federal Reserve announced a program uh, yesterday where every bank can now pledge investment securities at the Fed uh, to gain access to liquidity if needed. That's certainly a a welcome measure. Um, so that's basically giving banks the ability to pledge those securities that are underwater to create liquidity to fund uh, customers' deposit outflows. Um, we received communication from the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago this morning that they are ready and able to help in terms of supplying liquidity to its member banks, of, of, <clears throat> of which we are one. Um, so they're they're doing a lot to stabilize the system and just prevent panic. Um, people are certainly concerned if they have balances over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which are uninsured. I would not be surprised if the FDIC did what they did back in the Great Recession, in that saying basically all deposits are formally insured. I'm not sure if they're they're ready to take that step yet. Um, I think it will depend on. Um, what happens this week with with deposit outflows? Uh, Chris Whalen, who's an investment banker from New York, we talked to earlier in the program, basically said, look, this is going to be a mess that uh, the banking sector has to clean up and will pay for in terms of loss of shareholder value, as in the case of, for example, Silicon Valley Bank, and depending on exactly what the Fed does, uh, perhaps uh, with respect to some uninsured deposits as well. Uh, is that your handle? Is this is this a, a blip uh, or is this something that is going to have to be uh, addressed uh, as um, things develop in the coming weeks, where we're not going to ex- exactly know the full extent of this for a while? I think it's I think it's the latter, Dan. I think it's um, this is going to take a while 
to develop. I think um, it, you know if there's a if there's a bright side to this, it will force um, bank customers to really get to know their bank and get to know how strong it is or how or what its weaknesses are, what are its lending practices, where what are the sectors that they lend to that that could have some um, some exposure. And um, I, I do I do think it's going to take a while to to leak out and and rectify. Uh, I think the biggest risk right now is just depositor perception that you know um, I I can only keep two hundred fifty thousand dollars at at each bank because that's what's insured. I think the FDIC is going to get out in front of that this week, but it will take time to you know restore that confidence back in the system. At uh, Signature Bank of Chicago, your bank. Um, what were like some of the recurring questions that you got from clients and and your response to uh, you know address these some of these concerns you're you're describing generally? You know, most of it was just confusion with Signature Bank New York. Um, mm -hmm. It, it mm -hmm. you know it started last week with CNBC and a bunch of outlets put out an article about what was happening with Silicon Valley Bank, and all those articles uh, were mentioning Signature Bank as as having cryptocurrency exposure they were sort of pioneers in that in that um, market and so just the the natural confusion with uh, the two banks having similar names um, you know really started all the the conversations and concern from from customers but I think what sets us apart is you know first of all we're not a hundred billion dollar bank um, so we're we're small enough and we're Community focused enough that our depositors know who we are, uh, and we have those those personal relationships with the decision makers at the companies that we bank. So, the three of us certainly took a lot of calls over the weekend. We're going to be making a lot of calls today. We put out, um, you know, some some clarifying emails as you referred to. Um, anyone who has any questions about the bank, uh, there's a, we put out a statement on signaturebank.bank that gives uh, access to the three of us. Uh, our cell phones are, are posted, uh, and I encourage anyone that has any questions or any concerns to contact us, and, and we'll address them. All right. Uh, so does ABC owe you an apology for using have you got, the wrong uh, logo? Or, or they reached out one? to you, or yeah. did they recant? Uh, our PR firm did reach out to ABC, talked to someone at the news desk yesterday. They were, um, I guess, somewhat noncommittal about whether they were going to print any retraction <laughs> Um, so remains to be seen, but uh, certainly that's not what I wanted to see on a Sunday morning. <laughs> right. Maybe instead of a so PR lazy. firm, you should have a, a corp counsel uh, issue a demand letter over to ABC to suggest that uh, it's important that they correct the record. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, we, those those discussions will happen this week for sure. There you go. All right, SignatureBank.Bank at Signature Bank of Chicago. He's Kevin Bastuga, one of the co-founders. My business bank. Glad to know it's fine. That's good. It's always encouraging to, to know in the wake of all this and confusion. So we're happy to set the record straight, even if ABC won't. Kevin Bastuga, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it. Thank you both. I appreciate the time. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. 
Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. 